Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us at Back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. Neufeld will continue his series, The Fellowship of the Gospel, with a message from the last chapter of the book of Philippians called Disciplined Thinking. So let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 9. Proverbs 23, 6 and 7 says, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Well, you can almost imagine that scenario. On the outside, a man says one thing, but his inner thoughts, he is saying something else. You know, the King James Version translates it this way. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. And then it says, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. In other words, that's the real him. The idea is that you can't understand a man or a woman until you know how he or she thinks in his or her thoughts. From that passage has come the well-known phrase, as a man thinketh, so is he. You know, it can be argued that our thinking process influences our character. Whether we will be courageous or cowards, whether we will look for the best in people or malign them, it affects our health, our sense of purpose, whether we seek to achieve or fail to do so, whether we think the future is as bright as the promises of God, or whether we always assume the worst in all possible scenarios. Our thinking, how we conceive of things, has a bearing on all of these matters. We're coming to the end of Philippians, and Paul's instructions at this point become altogether fascinating. Let's read our text, Philippians 4, 6-9. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This paragraph has one important theme for the Philippian church. In their fellowship in the gospel, they must have been disheartened to see their leader imprisoned with the possibility of execution. They had watched the city in which they lived turn with suspicion and slander against their church, which resulted in persecution. They were being warned that false teachers were on the way and may target their church, bringing confusion. And in the long haul, persecution and poverty might overwhelm their resolve. Finally, a quarrel between two women was yet unresolved. The list sounds ominous, but it's not. Paul begins, don't let this stuff present you with even one sleepless night. Don't you be anxious about anything. Indeed, if you train your mind correctly, you'll be able to continue to be as obedient and faithful as you have been in the past. These are not the worst of times. Don't be anxious about a single thing. You can replace all troubling concerns that you might have with faith-filled prayers and a confidence that faces the future as a friend. Let's re-examine the beginning of verse 6 again. Do not be anxious about anything. I wonder, are any of us shocked by that? Let's make this, which is a command in Scripture, God's will for your life, let's make this as practical as we can. What are you worrying about today? Is it your children? your finances, your marriage, your job. Perhaps you're a student and you're worried that your marks aren't good enough to get you into that program that might determine your future. 
How about your inability to learn to overcome a persistent sin in your life? How about the state of the world, including wars and rumors of wars, or the shaky nature of the stock market? Well, you shouldn't worry about that. Here's a little secret. All worry is a sign of unbelief. It's a demonstration of the fact that there are some things you just won't trust God about. See, if you actually believe Romans 8.28, that God has determined for those who love him to work all things for your eternal, long-term good, you'd have the greatest possible weapon against worry. But because you resolutely refuse to take God at his word, you worry, you fret, you obsess, and you lose hours of sleep and shorten your life. Listen to Psalm 91, verse 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. What is it that you're worried about today? Can you look at anything in your life right now and say to God, I can't hide in the shadow of your wings around this. You could never be a fortress to me here. I can't trust you with my children or my finances. You're unable to deliver on that which you have promised. You aren't big enough for my problems. Now, you might not know it, but this is exactly how you're thinking when you worry. See, but you might protest, that's not so. I'm worried about my own mistakes or failures or lack of discipline or something I was responsible for. But don't you see, the same principle applies even to your own mistakes. Aren't you telling God, that he isn't big enough to cause your mistakes to work out for your long-term good in his glory. No, all worry is sin, and a grievous sin against the power and the goodness of God. How do we defeat worry? Well, according to Paul, we pray. And the idea of supplication, well, that's an older word, it simply means to plead with someone with a sense of urgency. So if your case is urgent, go plead with God. But you might say, well, I've been doing that. Huh. But read the entire sentence. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And that's the key, with thanksgiving. Why? Because God cares for you. So knowing that, well, be thankful. And if you do that, your anxiety will go away. And in its place, it will be replaced with a sense of peace that Paul says passes understanding. I think he means here a kind of peace you actually can't measure or contain. It's a peace that will surround you. If you learn to pray about everything, deeply grateful that God will work all things for your eternal long-term good, because that's what thankfulness entails, you'll experience a realm of peace you have never known until now. That's the basic message. Now let's relate that to the wider context of this passage. The church in Philippi had two prominent women who, because of some issue, had a disagreement. And if left unchecked or not dealt with according to biblical principles, could have ramifications for the unity that was so part of that wonderful and godly church. The need was there for a healthy unity to remain. But what was there to worry about? Is it that the biblical wisdom necessary was not present in the congregation? Is it that injustice or unrighteousness will win the day? Well, it might, but not the final day. The final day is owned by Christ, and his righteousness cannot be defeated. Then what should you do? Well, pray, make requests, and then bathe those requests with deep gratefulness that the God who loves you is working this thing out perfectly. And then keep giving thanks, and then settle deeply into a supernatural peace. But we're not done. Paul now gives us the final piece in verse 8. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Well, here we're back to that line from Proverbs, as a man thinketh, so is he. Or consider Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Or consider what Jesus said in Mark 12, verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, Jesus has actually added a word. He's quoting directly from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, which tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might or strength. But Jesus added to that scripture, after all, he can, he's the son of God, he added with all your mind. As Cornelius Plantinga commented, It's as if a little child prayed a nighttime prayer and said, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my brain to keep. Yes, Lord, keep safe those things that I meditate on. So here's the thought. It's not the situations that we go through that ultimately define us. It is rather the lens we use when looking at them. Joseph could say to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, You intended this for evil. But God intended this for good. He could look at things that would have destroyed many a man. He was hated by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused of molesting a woman. He's thrown into prison. He's forgotten by a man who said he would remember him. But instead of allowing bitterness to become the determining factor of his life, or becoming crippled by life's reversals in fortunes, and so being unable to carry on, he is confidently able to see God's gracious and meticulous sovereignty in these matters. Maybe he only saw it later, but he did see it. See, in order to do that, we really must train our minds. And when we come back, we'll see just how Paul instructs us to do that. It's easy to see why this passage is often quoted and referred to amongst Christians. It contains such practical and encouraging words from Paul to the believers. When we think about it, our thoughts can so easily control us without our even being aware of it. That's why it's important to keep our minds trained to think in godly ways, to consider whether our thoughts are of the Spirit or are we opening ourselves up to be influenced from somewhere else. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will walk us through the list of what we must train our minds to think about in verse 8. Over the past months, I've been asked a few of the same questions a number of times. Typically, they would be, how is Dr. Neufeld? And the answer is, great. He's working from home for the most part, but well and safe. Another is, how is your staff? Well, the staff is great as well. Many are working remotely with a handful in the office, but they're all fine and the work of the ministry is continuing. Another question is, how is the ministry doing financially? Well, to that I say, God is good. He provides. Gracious partners across the country continue to give and we're so appreciative. Times are uncertain and we must tighten our belts, so to speak, but we walk in confidence. So thank you for staying in touch. Thank you for supporting in prayer. And thank you to those, including our monthly partners, who continue to give regularly. And for those who are not able at this time, we understand. Please keep praying for the ministry. If you are able, please continue to stand with us in challenging days. Delivering God's message of hope is critical. 
To learn more about the Bible teaching resources available through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, or to support the ministry with a financial gift today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In the context of the wider passage we have been reading, we've seen Paul commend a series of attitudes. Rejoice, be gentle, do not be anxious, pray. You know, if we do these things, a peace that passes understanding will rule our hearts and minds. But now in order to do these things, Paul presents us with a series of thought patterns Thought patterns that will invite these virtues to become dominant in our lives. Indeed, he presents us with six such thought patterns. Here's the first of them. Think about the things that are true. You know, in Ephesians 6, that great passage that speaks about Christians putting on the armor of God in order to withstand the schemes of the devil, he tells believers to put on the various pieces of their armor, and he starts with commending what he calls the belt of truth. Truth, it turns out, is a basic Christian weapon when we battle evil. Jesus in John 8:32 said, "The truth will set you free." In Psalm 43, the psalmist calls on God to vindicate him and defend him from ungodly people. And then in verse 3 he says, "Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill." See, in contrast to God's holy hill, which is the place of truth, is the kingdom of Satan. John 8:44 just two verses after Jesus had promised that the truth would set us free is the statement that Satan is the father of lies. Concentrating our minds on things that are true means we give ourselves to truth in the broadest sense of the word. We begin with the truth we know about God, the truth God has revealed in his word. But it also means that we reject a world of half-truths, rumors that can't be verified, slanderous accusations against others, and all things that violate God's word. Now let's notice the second thought pattern, whatever is honorable. The English Standard Version translates this same word when it uses it in Titus 2.2 and 1 Timothy 3.8 as dignified. Think about things that are dignified or noble. The opposite is to think about things that are ignoble or shameful. See, we can allow our minds to be taken up in events where we delight when people are shamed, are proven to be less than they should be, or we can allow our minds to be taken up in things that are grand and noble. The third thought pattern, whatever is just. Now again, we must remember that what is just or righteous or in keeping with justice is defined by God. But furthermore, Scripture gives us a number of principles for just living. As an example, consider James 5.4 in employer-employee relationships. James says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. See, justice in relationships covers all manner of situations, from marriage to children, with parents to work relationships and so forth. Paul says, learn to discipline your mind by asking the question, not what's best for me, but what does God's righteousness demand in this situation? Now, the fourth thought pattern, whatever is pure. Now, of course, this is not limited to sexual purity alone, but it must include sexual purity. You know, the problems in our culture is that our culture has made a virtue of celebrating that which is impure, everything from provocative clothing to sexual permissiveness to hardcore pornography and voyeurism. 
See, the fight for pure thoughts must be taken seriously by every believer. It will require we turn away from movies and images and literature that celebrate that which is unclean to actively disciplining our minds to finding purity, to be altogether desirable and delightful. We need to retrain our taste buds, building a mindset that internally rewards pure thinking. We can train our minds to think that way. The fifth thought pattern, whatever is lovely. I know that I live in a lovely part of the world. I I think the mountains and the ocean have a stunning beauty. I think that God's order in the natural world is lovely. I think that there is a lovely music, and I think that there are grungy forms of music. I think there is art that floods the soul with wonder and lifts our highest thoughts. And I think there is art that inspires the basest of human thought. I think at its root, Paul means whatever is morally lovely. And then sixth, whatever is commendable. That means whatever conduct is to be praised among people. Here, let me ask you a question. When you speak about others, and by the way, we all speak about others. Are you concentrating on the dumb things others have done? Their moral failures, their shameful acts? Or is your conversation dominated by people who have left examples you are delighted to follow? What do you talk about when you talk about others? Now, Paul's not telling the Philippians to go through life with rose-colored glasses, kind of like the guy who puts both hands over his ears when he hears of anything that's less than comfortable. Of course we are aware of lies, those who lack honor, of injustice, and of impurity. What kind of people would we be if we did not fight injustice? We really do notice the things that are impure and the things that are unholy. Paul himself regularly warns God's people about false teaching. And in Philippians 3, 2, he did say, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. He wanted people to be completely aware of false teaching and who the false teachers were. Also, he was not unaware of those who persecute God's people. For instance, in 2 Timothy 4.14, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. In other words, he took note of the enemies of the cross, but he did not allow the harm done to him by Alexander the coppersmith to define him. He didn't allow his thinking to constantly circle around the deeds of that evil man. Rather, his thought system is informed by joy and thankfulness to God. That's why it's necessary to make a daily habit of Bible reading and prayer. See, if you start your day with what is lovely and praiseworthy in Scripture, it does set the tone for the rest of the day. See, but let's remember the wider context again. Think of Euodia and Syntyche, two women who had a disagreement they just couldn't seem to resolve or transcend. What if their mindset had focused not on the difficulties in their relationship, but on what is pure and beautiful, even in each other. What then? And how about you? What dominates your thinking? Is it the wrongs that have been done to you, or the enormity of the kindness of God? Is it the worries about life, or the manifold grace of God, and the peace that comes when we place all our cares before Him in prayer? Perhaps you can identify with the lines of this poem. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. Well, in a sense, what we have in the end of Philippians is a kind of defiant holiness. Against all the ugliness around us and against all the disappointment we find in one another and against all the sins and bad motives we find so easily in one another. 
and against all things in life that cause us to worry, in defiance of all that, we can insist that the true and the honorable and the just and the lovely and the praiseworthy and the excellent will form the basis of my thinking. Now go to verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I find it comforting to think that rejoicing and finding unity and learning to allow reason rather than reactive passion to govern us, rejoicing in the Lord in all things, trusting in God's meticulous sovereignty, and learning a mindset that leads to peace. See, all of that, it's doable. Paul had learned it. No, he wasn't perfect, but he was making these things the defining characteristics of his life. And we, with the help of the Holy Spirit, can learn these things as well. Back in the year 1925, Kate Wilkinson wrote a wonderful hymn that expresses Paul's sentiment well. She wrote, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day, by his love and power controlling all I do and all I say. I might have added also, in all I think. Today, make it your prayer to ask God to renew your mind. You and I can learn to reject a meditation on that which is evil and feed our mindset on things that are righteous. If that's a difficulty for you, ask God for help. You might need to separate yourself from people and things that feed you with God-dishonoring mindset and begin to be discipled by people who really do think God's thoughts after Him. John, of all of those things that Paul mentions in verse 8, which one's the most challenging for you? Great question. This is a confession time, I think. And one of the things is lovely, um, that rather than looking for the underside and the negative side of things, to concentrate on that which is altogether praiseworthy. Um, May God continue to give me grace as I learn the discipline of that kind of thinking. Every one of us will have something we can identify with here. The practice of renewing our minds is a command for all believers to follow daily. In one sense, we're reminded today of the battle which we fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers at work in the spiritual realm. This idea of a defiant holiness, I think, captures what Paul is trying to convey to the church. We must be on guard in case we fall into sin and temptation. I hope today's message empowers, encourages, and perhaps convicts you as we meditate more on what it means to train our minds to think on what is good, lovely, pure, and commendable. Join us tomorrow as we continue Dr. Newfeld's series, The Fellowship of the Gospel. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. What a time in history. In one sense, who would have imagined? In another, the Bible suggests that we should expect such times. In either respect, it is certainly a reminder of those things that matter most. Our love for God, our love for family, and the calling each of us has as children of God to share the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the mission of Back to the Bible Canada. And we're so grateful that as a result of so many people across the country who give so generously and many sacrificially, that this mission continues. So thank you. Your commitment to giving allows this Bible teaching ministry to sustain its programming every day. So coast to coast, to each of you, we express our gratitude and please be assured every gift of any amount is so appreciated. To know more about the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, 
and all the Bible teaching resources available, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.